Hello, and welcome to the Hearn Him Podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what, what you, you get, get is a podcast. That's two episodes in a row that we've got it down now. I'm very proud of us. <laughs> this is this is a really big accomplishment in the life of the Chamberlains. <laughs> it is. It's pretty crazy. Well, today on the podcast, I thought it'd be fun to get historical and also to define a term that's kind of difficult to define, even though we use this word literally on, I think, every single episode of the Her and Him podcast. We do. And it's probably good we define it because it's a term that's not only used on our podcast all the time, it's used just about everywhere that is talking or has anything to say about Christians at all. Right. But most importantly, we use it a lot on the podcast and that's what people are listening to most and defining their lives by. So right. we want They're to define to what, us. what we mean when we say it. And that word is, are you ready for it? Ready. Evangelical. What on earth is an evangelical and what is evangelicalism? So counter to what you might believe evangelicalism to be based on all the other places you hear it, like on the cable news and all the times they're talking about evangelicalism. And we also hear this in regards to political platforms quite a bit too. You hear people reference the evangelical Christians and where they stand and what they're supporting and what they're not supporting. But contrary to what all of those other resources, I suppose you could call them, are saying, there is an actual definition to what evangelical means. Yeah, and so you might associate evangelicalism with being a voting bloc, in particular a conservative Republican voting bloc. You might even associate evangelicalism with whiteness, uh, and you might even just think of evangelicalism as synonymous with Protestant or with Christian. And while all of those things are kind of sometimes helpful thumbnails of what evangelicalism is, they don't itself constitute the whole of the movement. Evangelicalism is actually a historical movement that's been around for a while that is a subset within the the world of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so we want to take some time today and talk about what are the guiding values and beliefs within that historical movement, and then kind of briefly trace the history of what is evangelicalism so that we can get to a better understanding of what that means. And I feel like that's important because when you look at being an evangelical, there's a lot of people who are evangelicals who have mixed feelings about being evangelical these days, just because of a lot of the things that evangelicalism has become associated with. But I feel like if we look back on the history of evangelicalism, uh, both its strengths and its mm. downfalls, mm -hmm. I think that gives us a clearer vision for where we want to be going to pull out the most important parts of the movement and to carry those into the next generation. Right. And so the hope is that this will be helpful, not just for the sake of talking about history and the movement of evangelicalism, but as you yourself it's very likely you identify as an evangelical because it really does make up a large category of Christians. And in your identification as an evangelical, it's helpful for you on a very personal level in your faith to, again, look at what has the evangelical movement gotten right and where are some areas that we need to correct. Because right now we are seeing we're really at a crossroads in our culture, in our society, in a large number of ways, and we're seeing that penetrate into the church. So as we're heading into this crossroads, what can we see that has been done well, and where do we need to see a course correction happen? And we don't promise to have the answers of how to course correct or what that looks like culturally in our churches and what it looks like for you as an individual. But we hope at least this podcast will begin to provoke some of those thoughts in your mind. And so we wanted to start off really with just defining the word evangelical by itself. And so it actually has its origins in Greek. As all good words do, they're either Greek, Hebrew, or Latin. Exactly. At least the ones that we talk about. <laughs> yeah. And so the Greek word is euangelion, and that actually translates into English as gospel or good news. 
And so you might be thinking, well, all Christians should care about the gospel and the good news. So the word itself is not incredibly helpful to give us the details of the movement itself because it feels very broad and feels very general and as if every single Christian should say, yes, of course, we are all evangelicals. And in many ways, the answer is yes. But in other ways, as we explore the movement itself, the answer might not always be yes. Right, because the definition of the word itself is one thing, and then there's how it's been used as a moniker for a particular group of people within Christianity and within Protestantism as a label for who they were, what they valued, and kind of the general trend lines of that. But what's interesting about the historical movement, as we'll kind of outline the values first and go into the historical movement itself, is that as a movement, evangelicalism has been very decentralized. It's not like one organizing body. There's not one governing authority over evangelicalism. And I think partly that's what makes it hard to define because Mm. depending on who you are, it can mean what you want it to mean. And there's no evangelicalism police that's going to come and tell you, no, that's not evangelicalism. Actually, that's not true. John MacArthur will probably come and tell you that. But by and large, there's no one with authority over you that is really defining these things for us. But... From a historical perspective, we can see the the trends of the movement itself. And the the trends have followed along a certain set of values that were important. They kind of coalesced into this broader movement amid a, a diversity of different groups and people. Right. So it allows for a lot of different theological views. And that's why you have a lot of different denominations that would all say they are evangelical Christians. For example, uh, Baptists, they refer to themselves as evangelicals. You have Presbyterians, Anglicans, Pentecostals, non-denominational churches, uh, and even Roman Catholics. Some of them refer to themselves as evangelical Catholics. Yeah, most famously is probably former Vice President Mike Pence calls himself an evangelical Catholic. Right. So there's, as you can see, just based on that list alone, there's a lot of diversity within theological thoughts, but there are four common core beliefs that you would have to hold to in order to be considered an evangelical based on what we see historically through the evangelical movement itself. Yeah, and this kind of fourfold definition of what it looks like to be an evangelical comes from a guy, a historian uh, named David Bebbington, and we'll link to his book in the show notes, but This is kind of like the definition of evangelicals among historical theologians. I mean, there's some others that are out there, but this one's pretty definitive. It's kind of the gold standard. And it's come to be referred to as the Bebbington quadrilateral because there's four parts to it. There are four values to it. And uh, the first one of those is something called conversionism. Yeah, and conversionism would refer to the idea that each believer as an individual has a personal commitment to Christ. Like you have your own conversion story. There was a moment in your life when you did not know Christ, you were not saved, you you didn't have faith in Jesus, and then there was a very definitive moment that happened and you were converted and transformed and now you're on this road to sanctification of becoming more like Christ. But that is one of the four pillars of evangelicalism is each believer has to have some type of a conversion story where they once didn't have faith in Jesus and then they came to faith in Jesus. Yeah, and this is so ensconced in evangelicalism that many people even talk about their spiritual birthday, like the day they put their faith in Jesus. Yeah. And yeah. they'll celebrate that and memorialize that every year. I mean, I don't necessarily, I mean, I'm not going to poo-poo people that do that, but I don't necessarily <laughs> have that as the a theological value, but it, term. He's right, but it, yeah, I'm not going to theologically poo-poo you, but you know, that's not a value that I necessarily have as this moment, but that goes to show like how prevalent this sense of conversionism. There was a before and there's an after. And also attached with that is the idea that you were born again, you were born afresh, that language coming from John 3, born again Christian, that's an mm-hmm. evangelical, that there was this before experience of the things that you valued and believe before and the things after and obviously those things after are more Christward. So that is conversionism. The second one is activism. And this idea of activism as Bebbington defines it as an evangelical trait is 
the commitment to not only being personally transformed in your life by your faith, but also playing that out in the good works that that God has called you to do. And there's kind of two parts to that. The first part is personal evangelism. It's very evangelical to be evangelistic. It's part of the <laughs> activism. Right. But then also attached to that historically has been uh, a concern for the poor, has been philanthropic efforts. And so both mission and humanitarian efforts are attached in this idea of activism. So there's a definite before and after, conversion of activism, you're evangelizing, and then you're also helping those with physical needs. And then the third one is biblicism. Yeah, this is a real big one for evangelicals. I guess all four of them really are. But this one, the idea... Each one we're, we're going through, like, wow, yeah, this is yeah, important. this is very... This is very important to evangelical. very central to the faith. So this one is the idea that the Bible is at the center of everything in life for the evangelical person. So there is nothing greater than the Word of God in your life. Tradition doesn't hold more power or weight. People who are in leadership over you, their words don't hold more power or weight than the Bible the authority of scripture and it being central to not just your faith, but central to who you are as a person. Because again, that goes back to the first point of your conversion is once you are converted, Jesus is everything. And the way that you begin to live your life and know how to live your life according to Jesus is through the Bible. So the Bible is a really big deal for evangelicals, and it is the ultimate authority in terms of how to live your life. Right. And then the last one, which is kind of encompassing all of them, is crucicentrism. And really what that means is that the cross is at the center of everything. And so penal substitution, if you listen, I think, two episodes ago, that's at the center. That the center of everything, part and parcel of what it means to be an evangelical is that you're always talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. It always ties back into that. And so those are the four defining features, values that historically, and and as we look at the history, have defined evangelicals. It's that conversionism, before and after transformed life, activism, which is evangelism, and and good works for the, the betterment of other people particularly those who are less fortunate or impoverished. Biblicism, that you know the Bible and you live the Bible. And crucicentrism, that the cross is at the center of all of that. And so you can be a part of any number of denominations or traditions or non-denomination and really have those at the center. And as you think about those uniting values, those are so central to so many different denominations that even if Mm -hmm. you stand in a different place on the role of women in leadership or what you think about the spiritual gifts or how you think church should be structured, all of those things kind of are secondary to these values. And so that's why evangelicalism as a movement within, you know, broader Protestantism has such a large tent. Right. So it's very likely that you are an evangelical. Like if you're listening to this and you're agreeing with all four of those and thinking, yes, every single one of those is is really key to my faith and it's what I've come to believe as important aspects of my life, then you, my friend, are an evangelical. And if not, that's cool too. We're glad that you're here listening. Yeah, absolutely. And that you're, you're just muscling through what we're talking about. <laughs> right. Because obviously a lot of what we talk about comes out of our evangelical Christian faith. So, right. But more than just a set of like beliefs. And in fact, there's no like creed. There's no evangelical creed. There's no evangelical statement of faith that you sign this and I am an evangelical. These are just generally the things that we value. So it's much more than those things. It's actually this historical movement that, as far as we can tell, dating back to the 1730s, has had about four major waves in Europe and North America. And as it's been a part of Europe and North America, it's been exported through missions work. And so a lot of different places in the world look evangelical. So we thought it would be helpful to go back to that first wave of evangelicalism. What was the start of this thing? And to kind of take a look at the history of that. And as we do that, we'll reference a book called A Short History of Global Evangelicalism. It's by Mark Hutchison and John Wolfe. 
And I don't believe actually either of these guys is an evangelical, but they just outline the history and they're very good historians and they describe evangelicalism in a neutral way. And, and in many ways, it's a very charitable treatment to evangelicals. So we'll link to that one in the show notes if you want to pick it up. Uh, I, I recommend reading it. I thought it was very insightful. But uh, they agree with a lot of other historians that the story of evangelicalism begins in the 1730s. And it starts really with three key dudes. And that was Jonathan Edwards, John Wesley, and George Whitfield. Their names all sound very familiar. I like <laughs> they, they all sound like the, old white dudes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. John, John, and George. Yeah. So we want to kind of just give a brief, I guess, overview of these three guys and then move through the different waves of evangelicalism. So first we'll start with Jonathan Edwards. So he was an American preacher who had a church in and New England. And he could England. rock a powdered wig. A powdered wig? Yeah. Oh. Like he, like that, and like the, the frilly... Blouse. Oh, yeah. Well, I that mean, that was his jam. It was the 1700s. What did you expect? Yeah, he was quite stylish. I know. If you just like read his writings, and you think like, oh wow, like this guy's like really, really preaching. And then you look at him, like, that's what he looks like. <laughs> it's kind of disappointing. But anyway, yeah, reading his sermons <laughs> is really interesting. But again, yeah, his picture probably doesn't fit. You're right. Based on his you writings, you look at him, you think like, oh, I thought he would have looked a lot manlier than this. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. So, Jonathan Edwards, an American preacher um, who was a pastor of a church in New England, and he was famous for, a. I guess there's a lot of sermons that we'd probably be pretty familiar with from Jonathan Edwards, but I think one of the more popular ones that we're aware of today is called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and the title of that, I feel like it's really harsh. But it's actually a really good sermon. I mean, it was a pretty harsh sermon, but yeah. Yeah, but that title alone, I think you're just like, wow, that's all you care about is an angry God. Like, he has some legs to stand on in his sermon. It's a very good sermon. Yeah, and when... It's very direct. It, yes. Very bold. But it's coming out of the congregation that he had and the issues within his church. So a lot of people were attending church. It was part of... It was just part of their life. Like, you go to church. That's what you do. You are an American and you go to church. And the issue was most of his congregation didn't well, read actually, their they Bible. Americans at that point. Oh, the 1730s, that's true. Yeah, yeah, there were still yeah. colonies. That's true. Well, you were colonized, so you went to church. <laughs> so a lot of the congregation was showing up drunk. Uh, they weren't reading their Bible. Like nothing about their lives actually looked like they were Christians. And as you can imagine, as the pastor of the church, that troubled him. And he began to change the way that he preached. He began to be more bold in the types of sermons that he was preaching and really to kind of wake his congregation up. And out of that came an awakening from his people. So their lives were actually beginning to reflect their faith in Jesus rather than just something they did on Sundays. And as we look at these three men, we'll see something very similar happening to all three of them that they, well, most of them didn't know one another and it wasn't a planned awakening that they were working on together. Right. And so as Jonathan Edwards starts preaching, you know, he preaches sinners in the hands of an angry God. People start to wake up. Like all of these Bible studies start to pop up all over the neighborhood. Uh, People are beginning to, you know, have Christian values. They are serving. They are um, expressing generosity. Things are changing and and it balloons out from the direct area that Jonathan Edwards was in. And what's interesting is that while that's happening with this Puritan preacher in New England, uh, something similar is kind of stirring in some students who are at Oxford University uh, across the pond in in England, <laughs> in the United Kingdom. And uh, one of those guys was John Wesley, who famously is the founder of the Methodist denomination. And John Wesley and his brother Charles, they started this club called the Holy Club, at Oxford University. I mean, it wasn't the greatest, most well-branded name, but they were the Holy Club. <laughs> and so they were uh, where Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan. They were pietists. So they're very pietistic, but interested in personal piety, knowing the Bible, reading the Bible, spending time in prayer. And so John Wesley 
and his brother Charles were a part of that. They founded it. And also George Whitfield was a part of that at one point. But after Oxford, John Wesley, he wanted to um, be a pastor and a missionary in the Americas. And so he went to what was then the colony of Georgia. And he just had a bad time of it. Like things didn't go <laughs> according to plan. It was way too hot. It just things were not progressing the way he thought. He thought he was going to go and he was going to, you know, quote, convert all the savages. And that didn't end up happening. Yikes. And so he went back to England kind of tails between his legs and really discouraged. Uh, but sometime later, he, he describes it as his heart being warmly filled. And so he started preaching. And what was interesting is that he, he didn't go to a church. He didn't, you know, start a church. Uh, or a pastor at church, but he was an itinerant preacher. And he started doing this thing that had never been done before. He started open-air preaching. He would go to where people were, and he would start preaching to them. And he was crazy. He would preach like 16 sermons a week all over, all over the place. And as a result of that, people like really started to uh, listen and change, and there was this movement that started. And George Whitfield was also part of that. And he kind of split time between the U.K. and Georgia— and he was just prolific as well. It, it has been said that he preached 18,000 times at least to perhaps 10 million listeners. And to be in the, the 1730s, to have 10 million listeners, right? that means like you physically got on a horse mm -hmm. and traveled to them and preached to that many people without microphones. And so it's just crazy. Like These guys were prolific. And so you kind of had this movement swelling in the South, the American South. You had this movement swelling in New England. You had this movement swelling in the UK. And they all kind of coalesce into this great awakening, this great spiritual awakening. And that's kind of the first wave of evangelicalism where people are uh, becoming very activistic. They're having conversion experiences. They're all about their Bibles. And, and Jesus and the cross are at the center of it. Yeah, what's interesting is these three men, again, they were located in different places and they actually had different theology. Like they didn't share the same theological views on everything you could think of. And yet they were all seeing this awakening within their communities simultaneously. And obviously we know that was the work of the Holy Spirit, but this is would be the first true awakening that we can see happening that really made way for this evangelical movement that we know of today. And so the second awakening probably was in the 1840s to the 1850s. And, and so this is just pre-Civil War. Yes, yes. And so what had probably sparked this second awakening um, was this concern for abolition, women's rights, and temperance. These were the important topics that were happening in society at large at this time. And again, out of that, you see another awakening uh, within the Christian faith. Yeah, so we saw this first great awakening in in the 1730s. And then about 100 years later, the 1840s and 50s, you again see these revivalist mm -hmm. events happening. Mm -hmm. You see people converting in droves. You see people very concerned with... Uh, abolition with women's rights with temperance and to be sure there were churches and church leaders on the other side of the abolition argument, absolutely even at that time but really there was this movement within the americas fueled by this spiritual belief in abolition and then the third one happened just before the turn of the 20th century and this is where the names start to look a little bit more familiar if you grew up mm -hmm. in the church so this is in you know when there was the ministry of D.L. Moody, when there was the ministry of Charles Spurgeon, and they were just huge. These the, the huge ministries uh, for their time was just crazy, the amount of people that they reached. And really, like this was a, a golden age for many evangelical institutions to begin, whether that was educational institutions, whether that was Christian publishers. You just think about like Biola was 1908. Dallas Theological Seminary was 1920-something, so a little bit later. Uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois, I think, was just before the turn of the century. Moody Bible Institute was right around the turn of the century. Moody Publishers. Mm -hmm. Zondervan was in the 1920s. So you had all of these 
organizations, educational organizations and publishers popping up because there was such a, an inflection point of desire for hmm. leaning into this movement and leaning into the, the, the values of what it meant to be an evangelical that all of these institutions started to pop up to meet the demand of people who are wanting to dive deeper into that. Yeah, and then we see the fourth wave, which really is the last one at this point. Was, so far. Right, around the 1950s to the 1970s. So this is probably even more familiar uh to you in terms of the names of the people that were associated with this fourth wave. And this is really where we see Billy Graham and his ministry just take off, um, as well as Calvary Chapel and the Jesus movement that was going on there. So much of what we see now in terms of the influences of our own faith have really been because of these four waves of evangelicalism happening uh, and not only just in our country, because obviously when it started, it was before America was truly founded as a nation. Anyways, so our faith and many great things about our faith, if you are an evangelical Christian, can be attributed to these four waves or these four great awakenings that were happening within Christianity as a whole. And it's interesting that you said that it feels like we're at an inflection point again where we're on the cusp of, of something newer, different iteration. As you look at the four waves, it's interesting that every 50 to 100 years, something happens where the milk of the previous movement had gone sour. And so there had to be this fresh wave of really the spirit of God and really people turning to these values that uh, they had held dear to in previous generations, but doing those in a in a new way, in a fresh way. And so as you look at the, the time we had the last one in the 1950s or the 1970s, we're about at that 50-year mark mm-hmm. where within our lifetime, it's not unlikely that we'll see another inflection point that will look and feel very different from the previous one in the same way that the one in the 60s felt different from the one at the turn of the century, felt different right. from the one during the Civil War or before the Civil War, felt different from the very first Great Awakening. There's these new voices, these new modes of doing things, whether it was publishing books or later it was TV and now we have the internet. Like there's the, All of these things are, are coalescing and we can utilize those. Uh, in brand new ways with a fresh falling of the spirit of God as we center around uh, these values of what it means to be an evangelical. Right. And just going off your assessment of the way that we see this kind of wave of another awakening every, you know, 50 to 100 years. And it's because something from that previous one was missing. Like there was some friction happening within that previous movement and to take your phrase, like the milk had gone sour. And again, I think we are at that and it point. it gets stinky. <laughs> like it, it goes a little sour and then it gets worse and worse and worse. And then it smells so bad that we can't stand it anymore that there's something new happens. Yeah, it's similar to when Silas leaves his chocolate milk cup in the car oh, gosh. for a few days. And it's like in the summer and you're like, what is that smell? And you're just... It's like under the chair. You're under, like I'm crawling in the car trying to figure out what is smelling so foul. Yes, that's where we are. It's real foul right now. So as we look back into history and see these multiple movements of faith, of evangelicalism, it's okay to look back and accept what was good of them, take what is good, and also be able to acknowledge what wasn't good. And so that's really where we want to pivot in the last half of this podcast today is looking back at the history of the evangelical movement itself and seeing what went right and what can we continue to take and honor and be thankful for and grateful for and what do we need to maybe assess and realize these are not good things that were part of this movement and we need to course correct. Yeah, and really, it really hasn't been all rainbows and sunshine. Like maybe the first part of this podcast made it sound a little bit like that. But as we look at kind of a warts and all history of evangelicalism, there are issues that we see within evangelicalism today that are huge 
And as we start to dig back into the history, we say, wow, like those things were actually endemic to the movement itself from the outset. And so what we want to do is kind of like, look, like what are the things that we can excise from evangelicalism? Uh, and moving forward, maybe you don't even feel comfortable calling yourself an evangelical. I know there's a, a large movement of people called ex-evangelicals who don't want to identify as evangelicals anymore. There's, there's a growing deconstruction community of people who are deconstructing out of evangelicalism. So maybe like that name has too much baggage for it at this point. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's something we can recapture. It doesn't matter. But if we look back at the the history of it, it doesn't matter what we label it. If we can pull some of these good things out while excising the things that were bad and endemic to the movement from the beginning, then then really I think we have a chance at, at a fresh movement of, of God that we can experience in our own lifetime today. Yeah, and I think one of those things that really began with the movement that we are now seeing has become really problematic for evangelicals at large is this idea that the word evangelical and white evangelical were actually synonymous. And we didn't really see people of color as part of this evangelical movement from the very beginning, long into the the first wave, the second wave. So really, it's something that was carried through wave after wave uh, for this movement itself. Wave after wave. <laughs> There's always some lyrics that I say in a podcast that always become a song for Dale. It's just the kind of memory you have. Anyways, thank you for distracting me. You're, you're welcome. You're the best. But you're saying that evangelicalism and white evangelicalism are basically the same thing. Like, same yes. difference. They're, they're synonyms. Right. And that's, I mean, there's a number of reasons why I think one of them obviously is when we look back at the beginning of this movement, it was three white men. Wearing powdered wigs. Yeah. Yes. With their powdered wigs. And as we continue to move through the movement and you see the universities that are popping up, you see the publishing companies that are popping up out of this great need, it was all being moved forward and pushed forward by white men specifically. And there are certainly people of color who would hold to the four truths or the four core central beliefs of what evangelicalism is. And they would say, absolutely, conversionism is important. Like We have our conversion stories and we believe in the Bible and that being central to our faith, we believe the cross is important. We believe activism is important. But they wouldn't self-identify as evangelicals because Throughout the history of this movement, they were not part of this movement. And in many ways, I would go as far as to say they weren't welcome into this movement either as people of color. Yeah. And to be sure, there are plenty of people of color who are within the evangelical movement and would consider themselves evangelical. There are people who are people of color who are leaders in evangelical churches and in evangelical denominations and in evangelical organizations and educational institutions. Uh, but even still within that, they are operating within the systems and structures of evangelicalism, which are defined by white culture. And that's the dominant culture. And when you look at more black expressions of the church in America, they don't identify as evangelicals, even like pollsters who aren't even a part of you know, these conversations with us in, in such a way, like they don't have a dog in this fight. They don't identify black expressions of the church that are pretty evangelical. They got crucicentrism, they got biblicism, they got activism, they got conversionism. I almost forgot what the other one was. <laughs> I they was going to save you. They have all those things that they look like historic evangelicals. They have all the same values, but they're not called black evangelicals. They're called black Protestants. Even people outside of the church in these conversations knows that evangelical means white, means white structures, means white uh, authority, and black Protestant is something entirely different, even though though values and beliefs beliefs are are very similar. And evangelicalism being such a broad tent, you would think it would include black Protestants, but because of the history of evangelicalism being what it is, Believers of color have been placed outside the bounds of that unless they were on the mission field. And then we kind of 
did a, a form of cultural imperialism with them, even as we evangelized to different parts of the world. Not only did they start to look Christian, they started to look like white culture when we went there. And so um, that's a huge problem within evangelicalism that's been a problem really since the beginning. Right. And we really begin to see what we understand evangelicalism today to look like and to be as something that came out of this fourth wave. And I think that's where the book that you recently read on, it was Jesus and John Wayne or something along those lines. Yeah, it was written by uh, Kristen Dumais and the full title, which is like, is really a zinger. Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. So, I mean, that's some good clickbait. That's, there's some editorialization (laughs) in the title itself. Mm, Yeah. Um, But she really does outline how, especially in the latter half Mm -hmm. of the 20th century and into the present, that American evangelicalism has been defined by masculine whiteness. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it comes from in the title. There was this famous quote from an op-ed that said, Jesus will save your soul, but John Wayne will save your booty. (laughs) (laughs) Can we say ASS on our podcast and not offend people? That's the actual quote. John Wayne will save your A. Jesus will save your soul. John Wayne will save your butt is basically the quote. And this kind of like steak and bourbon and guns and bar fights (laughs) kind of white ideal of masculinity, Mm -hmm. this rugged cowboy John Wayne kind of character has defined much of who we see God to be and much of who we see ourselves to be even more than the Middle Eastern Jewish man named Jesus. Mm. And so she outlines all the ways that 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 has occurred in America over the past 50 or so years. And so we'll link to that book in the show notes if you want to check it out yourself. Um, I mean, and some of her evaluations of certain people I don't necessarily fully agree with, but like the the argument that she she threads throughout the history is is quite compelling of this shadow side as mm. the same people who were heroes for white people were for white conservatives. Really, there was a different view of them if you weren't already in the white evangelical sphere of things. Well, and I think as we look into the history of this movement, you really see an unfortunate side of really the fabric itself of this movement and that being that from the very beginning you had these foundational men Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield they were slave owners and obviously that is going to make up a large part of the way that this movement moved (laughs) because if you are not only okay with slavery, but you yourselves are a slave owner, that is going to impact the way that you view entirely different groups of people that are not white. And so we see that issue in this movement from the very beginning, and we can continue to see the effects of that all the way up until today and the way that people who are non-white are viewed yeah, and it's interesting. So John Wesley was an abolitionist, but he spent most of his time in the UK. And actually the UK abolished slavery long before America right. did. But George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards were pro-slavery in the Americas. And George Whitfield was actually so it's not even that he was just a slave owner. It's he was pro-slavery. Like he advocated for slavery and made arguments for why it should be in existence. And so when those are kind of the founding members of your movement, mm-hmm. particularly here in America, you can see how American evangelicalism has taken on kind of the flavor of that. And even after, say, like the Civil War, many influential evangelical leaders were segregationists. And you think, like, what what kind of evangelical would be segregationists? Actually, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of leaders that were segregationists within the evangelical movement. And to be sure, there were a lot of others that weren't. But even a lot of those who weren't, they weren't always exactly super helpful. And I think one cornerstone example of that, and I feel like we beat up on him all the time now, but <laughs> would be Billy Graham, where Billy Graham kind of had one foot in the civil rights movement, one foot out when it started to get, things started to get a little tense. He kind of backed off a little bit, and then he kind of leaned into uh, conservative politics. Uh, he was a, a key part of rallying evangelicals around 
electing uh, Richard Nixon, and then Watergate happened, and he kind of backed out of that. So he kind of had like one foot in, one foot out on a lot of these issues. And I think uh, later in his life, he he admitted that he regretted the fact that he wasn't as supportive of the civil rights movement and desegregation as he could have been because his voice would have been hugely transformational. But because of the the time in which he was living and the uh, the general tenor of the church itself, he didn't do as much as he, he possibly could have. And it should also be said that he integrated his crusades. And he, so there were things that he did. But his silence, I think, for many was, was deafening as kind of the leader of evangelicalism for a, a decades-long period. Yeah, and you can even see threads of that today where it's really unfortunate. But if you are an evangelical Christian who is vocal about your care for racial justice um, and is vocal about the issues that are plaguing our society right now in terms of the numerous stories of injustice happening to people of color, then unfortunately, those people are being labeled as soft on theology, as wimpy in their faith, as, as opposed to the evangelical movement itself backing these things, it's now seen as if those are not primary issues right now. And if you are supporting any type of racial injustice issues, then it's because you're soft and weak. And it is interesting going back to that whole Jesus and John Wayne kind of a thing. Like we need tough men to Hmm. lead this spiritual revival. And so if you were uh, anything approaching utilizing things like critical race theory or intersectionality, then it's like, oh, like you woke liberal, you snowflake, you want to cry in your safe space. And so like a lot of the insults that are hurled are actually trying to emasculate Hmm. those who are on the side of the continuing fight of uh, the civil rights movement and civil justice for people of color and for women. It's that if you're for these things, then you're wimpy. And if you're wimpy, then that means that you're not Christian. And so that's really baked into much of what evangelical ideology has been and continues to be in, in large sectors of the evangelical movement here in America. And there was also a another issue that was really central. Well, not central, but it happened throughout the waves of evangelicalism was once we really see the works of Charles Darwin, you see the shift in evangelicalism that moves against intellectualism. So evangelicalism as a whole wouldn't say they're anti-intellectual, but we do see a move away from any of these kinds of sciences like behavioral science, uh, psychology, even counseling has become a weird thing where you have biblical counseling and it's really just reading Bible verses and you don't believe in issues of mental health and you don't believe there's any science that should be supporting these things because you were created in the image of God. Mental health doesn't exist. So you really begin to see this trend of anti-intellectualism that has snuck into evangelicalism because of the works of Charles Darwin. Yeah, and there's even kind of like a splinter movement within evangelicalism that is more fundamentalistic. Uh, Back at the turn of the 20th century, evangelicalism and fundamentalism were synonymous because there was a series of papers called The Fundamentals, and so you were a fundamentalist, you were an evangelical. But then that word fundamentalist took on a different flavor when kind of this anti-intellectual string kind of came into it. And it was, you know, very anti-evolution and it's anti-humanities and uh, anti-psychology. And that kind of exists as a separate wing, as a subset within evangelicalism. Uh, but even outside of that wing, some of those ideas kind of bleed through into mainstream evangelicalism, where obviously, like, you, you don't have to accept everything uh, from, you know, secular scientists. But I think the measure to which uh, some move, some parts of the evangelical movement have chosen to so thoroughly disengage from the conversation altogether and even really just want to discredit any of it, um, I think that's been damaging to our witness. And certainly it's been damaging to our 
theology and has been damaging to the way that we treat people and the way that we either help or don't help people. And even going back to the CRT conversation, critical race theory, it, there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thread of anti-intellectualism that comes with a rejection or saying that uh, you know, wokeness is the devil that's going to infiltrate the church. There's this fear and this anti-intellectual kind of tilt that is within that as well, even alongside some of the more, I guess, white supremacist uh, assumptions within the structures themselves as well. Yeah, and so as helpful as the evangelical movement has been throughout centuries, centuries now, and at millions this point, of people yeah, right. have come to know Jesus through the evangelical movement. And that's not a small thing. It's not a small thing to discard all of the work that has been done through the evangelical movement. It's clear that God was at work and moving through, again, the obedience of, of certain people and that just continuing to have this ripple effect. It reminds me of uh, in Acts when the early church began and it said thousands of upon thousands were coming to faith. And we have seen that happen through the evangelical movement, through the the course of the four waves. And so we shouldn't discard that and we shouldn't throw it all out because there are some really horrific things that were at the start of it. But now as we desire to move forward, the best way to move forward is to look back and see what has been done wrong. Where did the milk go sour? And maybe where did what it was start the best by sour? Date, yeah. yeah. <laughs> because our desire shouldn't be to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but to really look at it from a point of view of what went right and what went wrong and how do we course correct, not only for the sake of ourselves, but for the sake of those people who have yet to come to faith. For the sake of those who are hungry for the truth that only comes from Jesus. Like we have the good news of Jesus. And it's unfortunate the way that the message becomes so diluted because of the ugliness of humanity and the fallenness of people. And that is part of our world. (laughs) Like even as we course correct, we're going to get something wrong that a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, they're going to look back at whatever happens within the next few years and they're going to need to course correct again. Like that's what we see wave after wave was a course correction. So course correction is good and looking back is good and we can't nullify the entire movement because there was bad involved in it. We just need to pull out the bad. Yeah, and I think for those who grew up evangelical or in an evangelical space and you're feeling like really discouraged and really disenfranchised because a lot of the ideals that you were raised to believe don't seem to be playing themselves out in evangelicalism right now. Don't see that as your reason to walk away, uh, but maybe see that as an invitation to create something better along those ideals. Mm. And I don't think you have to throw the whole thing out. I know there's a lot of people that deconstruct that would say like, oh, it's arrogant of you to say that. Or, you know, don't tell people how to deconstruct. But really like, I, that, like you know, that's my heart for, for people who are like deconstructing, who are questioning, who are really disappointed by the fact that evangelicalism hasn't lived up to its own ideals in so many egregious ways. Uh, I think maybe that's an invitation for for you and for our generation to step into something new, to look back on what the, the great things that, that God was, was moving through and to get in those lanes in a fresh way, in a new way, in a way that's never been done before, that's you know, faithful in ways that, that are going to be brand new to this generation and, and that are really going to have an impact. I absolutely agree with that and think as believers, we know the good news. Like you see it throughout scripture. The good news is good. And there have been these dark shadows, unfortunately, that have plagued the good intentions of believers. And it's not to dismiss the wrong that has happened. But I think as believers now who have history to look back through, we have a responsibility to 
do everything within our power and seeking the Holy Spirit and his strength and his power to share the good news in a way that portrays Jesus in his purest form, apart from us, apart from our fallenness. And through the Holy Spirit, that's possible. Through the Holy Spirit, people will come to faith. So if you are journeying down that road of deconstruction, you can't just get rid of your faith altogether because that also assumes you have no responsibility. And you do. As a believer, you are held accountable for what you know. You are held accountable for the faith that you have. And you are called to make disciples and to share Jesus with people. So just because the movement didn't get it right doesn't mean you don't have to get it right. It doesn't mean you don't have to try. It doesn't mean you just throw it all out and say, well, they all got it wrong. I don't want to be part of that garbage. Okay, well, you know Jesus and he's not garbage. So you have an opportunity to do everything in your power through the Holy Spirit to get it right. So I encourage you to not fully deconstruct and to realize each and every single one of us has a responsibility to play. And we can't put all of the horrific things that have happened on the history of the movement and stop all of the good progression that has come out of that movement. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also, be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Do you want to better understand the Bible and give biblical answers to those who ask you about your faith? Hi, this is Perseus Poku, host of the Sound Reasoning Podcast Show. Listen to us weekly as we bring the truth often found in the ivory towers of seminary down to the steeple towers of the local church. Join me along with many of the nation's top theologians as we offer answers to life tough questions from an apologetic perspective. Subscribe to the show at lifeaudio.com.